Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hi, this is Richmond Webb, former offensive lineman for the Miami Dolphins, and you're listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. Welcome to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. I'm your host, Ken Crippen, and I'm the founder and lead instructor at the FLA. Our special guest this week is former NFL defensive back Marlon Kerner. Marlon was a third-round pick out of Ohio State drafted by the Buffalo Bills. He played for the Bills from 1995 through 1998. After that, he worked in corporate America until he took on the role of director of alumni for the Buffalo Bills. He then transitioned to the director of player engagement for the Bills before leaving to join the nonprofit space. In this interview, we talk about his football career and what he's been doing since he retired from football, including working for the Buffalo Bills and his current gig with Entrepreneurs Forever. For the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week, we talk about some of the great players that came out of Ohio State University. Now let's get to our interview with Marlon Kerner. I'd like to welcome Marlon Kerner to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. How are you today, Marlon? I'm doing well, Ken. Thank you for having me. Uh, Thanks for being here. I appreciate it. You played for The Ohio State University. I understand that you also received interest from Notre Dame. Why did you pick Ohio State over Notre Dame? You know, Ohio State really stayed true uh, in the recruiting process. uh, And I got a lot of, like, I got a, a letter from them almost every other week uh, during my senior year. Uh, and when it came down to it and I was ready to make a decision, they were on board and Notre Dame wasn't decided yet. They weren't sure what they wanted to do. So I decided to commit to Ohio State after taking my visit, having grown up in Columbus, been to many of Buckeye games, watching all the Buckeye legends um, growing up as a kid. It was kind of a no brainer to kind of go there. And ironically, the day that I, committed to Ohio State, I got a call from Notre Dame to come in town for a visit. And I was like, nope, I'm good. I've already committed to Ohio State. I'm going to keep my word. So I'm going there. Mm -hmm. Now, in high school, you were a quarterback, and then you converted to cornerback when you got to Ohio State. Tell me about that conversion. (laughs) So I didn't play um, organized football until the eighth grade, and I was a running back. And I liked running the football. I was pretty fast. And so I get to high school and I, I went to Brookhaven High School in Columbus uh, on the north side. Uh, it's now closed. It's, on, it's It was on Carl Road. And there were like 30 running backs. And I was like, oh, my God, just like there's no way I'm going to get any reps here. And I could also throw the football. Uh, and so it was like four quarterbacks in drills. And I was like, you know what? I, I'm going to go over here and play quarterback. So I just walked over and changed drills. I was like, you know what? I'm going to be. A quarterback, I can throw the football. And so I switched to quarterback as a freshman, ended up playing uh, all four years in in high school. And I didn't make the switch until I started getting recruited to Ohio State. Like I I played quarterback, but I knew I was getting recruited from them as a cornerback. And I remember it because I went to their football camp. I went to their football camp my junior year um, and my senior year, the summer of my senior year. And so... I go there and the summer of my senior year or the summer of my junior year going into my senior year, uh, they make you run 40. So they put you through the quarterback drills and then every group runs a 40. And the guy says, you got to run a 40. I'm like, okay, sure. No problem. Like, how do you want me to get down? He's like, you can get down in a track stance. You can get down a three point stance. I'm like a three point stance really like this. And he said, yes. So I, I get down in a three point stance uh, and and we're, we all their forties were timed inside their bubble um, so we were running on the turf field and I went and I ran and then I came back and he's like, that was pretty good. And I'm like, oh, okay. He's like, you got to do another one. I'm like, all right. And so I come back and we go through our group and then we, I, it's my time to go again. And I run another one, same thing, three point stance. I get down and I run. And then all of a sudden the defensive back coach comes over and is like, Hey, 
you know, um, have you ever considered uh, playing corner or have you ever played corner before? And I was like, I played the position before. And he's like, oh, you have? I'm like, yes. He's like, why don't you go uh, cover this guy over here? And I'm like, okay, where do you want me to stand? And he said, stand about seven or eight yards. And that turns into a 15-minute audition in front of the defensive back coach. And all of a sudden, I get done with that, and I play pretty well. I knock a couple passes down. People try to outrun me, but I, I knew I was pretty fast. Like, I, I was always confident that I could run fast, so I wasn't worried about anybody outrunning me. And after that audition, he was like, I think you can play corner at the next level. Can I recruit you as a corner? I'm like, sure. And he's like, okay, you can go back and do your quarterback drills. And I come back, and like, well, what did I run? And he's like, oh, you ran a 4-4 flat. <laughs> <laughs> And so I'm like, oh, okay, cool. So I find out I ran a 4-4 flat out of a three-point stance. Um, and then we had a really good season, uh, senior year uh, and then made the decision to go to Ohio State. And and that's kind of how I became uh, a cornerback just by going to their football camp. Mm. So as you approached your senior year and you're going throughout your senior year, did you think you'd be going pro? No, that was always the goal. I, I remember always telling my mom since I was four – that I'm going to play in the NFL. I'm going to the NFL. I'm going to the NFL. And she would always say, you know, that's fine, but you have to get an education first. So I kind of knew uh, early that in order for me to even consider getting to the NFL, I knew I needed to do well in school uh, and take care of grades. And so as I got a little older, my mom was always like, hey, you know, you don't get good grades. You can't play football. So it was kind of like academics was kind of like one of those things like, all right, I need to just make sure I take care of it. Um, going forward in high school and making sure that I had the right grades to play. So that was never a thought. I think once I got to Ohio State and I started playing, because I ended up playing as a true freshman uh, and then ended up playing as a true sophomore, started as a true junior and true senior. So it was kind of like, oh, this might happen. Uh, and then you start seeing some of your friends that you played with get drafted. And you're like, okay, like, you know, we had some great battles in practice and and I learned a lot from them and I hope they learned a lot from me. And so maybe that might come. And and then just being around the amount of athletes, you know, you had Dan Wilkinson and Joy Galloway and Terry Glenn and 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 Raymond Harris and Eddie George and so and Sean Spring. So you had all those guys that scouts wanted to come and take a look at. And so you always got the benefit of even if you didn't think you were on their level athletically, you always had scouts there watching. Uh, so you always kind of had an audience. And so I just kind of started figuring out how to play the game from making a switch of being an offensive guy to a defensive guy as a, as a freshman and just, just kind of figuring all that stuff out. And then I remember the Buffalo, when I got drafted by the Bills, I had no clue <laughs> that they were interested in drafting me at all. Um, I didn't have, but one conversation with them. And that conversation was, what did you eat for breakfast? Uh, and I was like, uh, I had pancakes. And he's like, you should eat pancakes more often. Cause I had a really good pro day. And that was mm -hmm. it. Like that's, I had no idea that they were going to draft me and that they were interested in drafting me at all. All right. So you mentioned the Bills had, you know, a one sentence uh, question for you. Um, beyond that, uh, did any other teams express interest in you? The most um, that I talked to was the Denver Broncos uh, and they didn't have a pick that first day. So they 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 didn't have a pick until the fourth round. Um, and so they were just like, hey, you know, we're interested in you. We like you. Um, if you're still on the board, um, then, you know, we would definitely consider taking you. And so that I thought I was going to go play for the Denver Broncos. Like that's what I, that's the only communication I had from anybody from the NFL. Uh, and then that phone rang one day uh, and it was the bills on the other end. And I was just like, oh my gosh, this, this is a lifelong dream and a childhood dream now come to fruition. And now I need to kind of figure out what that looks like because I'm going to play for the bills. And the only thing I really knew about the bills there in Buffalo, I was like, Buffalo's cold and they get a lot of snow and that they had been to four Super Bowls and lost. Like, so I, I knew that history. I knew they had some of the great players, but that was kind of the only history when you kind of think of like, well, I don't know too much about the Bills. That's what I know so far. Mm -hmm. As you're going through, you know, high school and college, are there teams that you wanted to play for? You know, I just wanted the opportunity to play. There I, there was no team that I would have never said no to. I, obviously, because especially if they draft, you don't really get a chance to say no. Um, and if I had been an undrafted uh, free agent, then I probably would have tried to take the best opportunity to make a team. Uh, and fortunately, I didn't. I was never in that position to kind of say, OK, I have to figure out what this looks like now that the draft has ended. Um, Buffalo saw something in me and said, hey, we think you can come and add some value and some, and some depth um, to our secondary. And they had some really good players. Ironically, they had a guy from Notre Dame and Jeff Burris. Um, who I I knew who he was because I had kind of studied their roster 
um, as a kid wanting to go to Notre Dame. So I knew him and knew how good he was as a player. And then, you know, you kind of get here and then you get to meet Andre and Bruce and Thurman and Jim Kelly and, and Kent Hall. And, and, and there was just, and, and Cornelius Bennett. So, you know, you're like, Oh my gosh, this is pretty amazing. And then having to go up against Steve Tasker, who was a really good receiver. Everybody thinks about him as a special teams player, but as a receiver, he was pretty good um, as well. And he was really shifty and quick in and out of his break. So, just having that opportunity to really just work on my craft and kind of figure out how to play the game. Uh, and I think for me, Buffalo was the best situation to be in. Uh, I had a coach who, who was, we, we all joke because he had a very monotone <laughs> way of speaking. It's just kind of, okay, young and this is how we do it. And you're like, oh my gosh. But he was such a stickler on all the details, knowing this, knowing that, understanding when we call this personnel, it also means this. He had a color for every personnel, and we would just spend hours going over it in the offseason. When I call white, it means this personnel. And you're like, oh, okay. So I, I my my knowledge really increased. Uh, and his name was Dick Roach. Uh, and he had a technique called the mirror and roll, um, where if you couldn't do his technique, you couldn't play. And so that really made me kind of not focus on so much trying to make the team at first. It was trying to get his get his technique down because I figured if I couldn't get the technique down, he wasn't going to keep me anyway. And so I really wanted to learn that. So I spent hours practicing how to do it and learn it. Uh, and then I was able to do that and and ended up making the team as a, as a rookie. Mm -hmm. Now you mentioned uh, a couple of things I want to dive into a little bit more. So one was Steve Tasker. So do you think he's eventually going to get into the hall of fame? I hope so. I think he's definitely qualified. He has the numbers. I'm not just one of those bandwagon guys that that look at him when you look at what he did he literally helped change games and the outcome of games by his play on special teams and I think he really helped teams and coaches who maybe didn't put that much of an emphasis on special teams it's kind of like eyes ah, offense and defense and whatever we could find a punter or a kicker off the street like he really made people start game planning for where he was going to line up and so when you look at somebody who had an impact like that uh, on the game, you can't say that he doesn't deserve to be in the Hall of Fame. And and I get the argument that there are other guys that might need to go in before him. But I think definitely at some point in time, you have to consider what he did for the game, what he did for his position, because um, he wasn't a guy who was back there just returning punts. He wasn't a guy who uh, who was like, hey, you know what? He broke the record for this because that they consider that, you know, part of the offense. Like he scored touchdowns. Like he made plays on games and and scored touchdowns on special teams, blocking punts and doing certain things. And so I think he definitely deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Whether he gets in over someone else, I'll let the people who make the decisions argue that um, and argue the merit of when people go in and how they rank them. But at some point, yes, I do think he deserves to be in and I do think that he does eventually get into the Hall of Fame. I definitely agree with you on that one. So you played for both uh, Marv Levy and Wade Phillips. Talk to me about what it was like playing for each of those coaches. I love playing for both of those coaches um, just because of the way they approached the game and the way that they talked to you. Um, it wasn't kind of that berating, belittling style of talking um, that I was accustomed to coming up as a youngster sometimes or even um, from some of my coaches that I had while I was at Ohio State. Uh, and so... Coach Levy was really one of those first one of the first coaches who was like, hey, I have an open door policy. And, you know, if you have if you have something you want to bring up, you can come to my door at any point in time and just say it like, you know, if you disagree with something, you can come and say it and talk to me as a man. I'm like, wow, you can do that. <laughs> like, you know, I'm used to that. He's a coach. Everyone else falls underneath here. And whatever the coach says goes. And he might respectfully disagree uh, and tell you, hey, you know what? That's a valid point. We're going to do it this way. But I might take it under advisement or no, we're not going to go that way because, and this is why, like he was really good about explaining the whys. Uh, and I love this, his style and his personality because, uh, you know, being uh, the way he was, he always would bring out some really cool stories uh, <laughs> that he always told the night before the games. And then he would always, he was, uh, we, we, we would joke and he'd be like, oh, he's like a walking thesaurus. Like he knew some of the biggest words, like what? And so you have to stop, like, what did he say? And and how do you, how do you spell that? And so we would laugh about that as players, like, man, but he really made you, just be on your P's and Q's and just kind of like, all right, like I need to know what this word means. And it's because he was stumpy with some stuff and I would laugh, uh, but he was really a player's coach. He really knew how to handle 
all of the personalities within a locker room um, and everybody respected him and everyone would play hard for him. And Wade was the same way. Wade was a player's coach, really laid back. Like I remember uh, my first action um, really um, as a, as a rookie, Jeff Burrs had got injured uh, and ended up leaving the game. And Wade's like, all right, you know, everybody's like, you're in, get ready to go. It's a Monday night game. We're back in Cleveland. I'm excited to play because it's in Ohio and, and I have family there and, and all my friends are going to be watching because it's a Monday night game and we're playing Andre Risen, uh and and Vinny Testaverde. And, and I'm like, OK, this is crazy. And I'm thinking I'm about to get this really cool speech about, all right, just be calm. Don't say this. Don't do this. Like, remember that. what? And he was just like, OK, Rook, you're in. Like, go play football. I, I know you know how to play. Go for, I know you know how to play football. Just go play. And I'm like, what? That's it? He's like, yeah, go play football. Okay. And so I went out there and just had fun and just started playing football. Uh, and we ended up winning the game uh, late uh, on the Andre Reid long touchdown pass. So, you know, things like that, when you think about coaches who just, they get it and they understand and, and the, the attacking style of defense that Wade ran. I love playing in that that defense. And and I still remember those calls and those hand signals that that he had. And and our, our favorite coverage, Sam and Will, one dog, just go play man to man and go lock up somebody and go play. Man, I imagine it was uh... – Definitely something that, you know, with Marv Levy leaving, Wade Phillips coming in, he's a defensive coach. Imagine that uh, when you heard that he was going to be the new coach, that probably made you pretty happy. Absolutely made you happy because you already had continuity with him. And, and being a defensive player, you're like, okay, great. Like, I have a head coach who's going who, who understands the defense, already knew the players, so he had relationships with some of the guys there. So that made it a lot more easier because then you knew you might bring in somebody else depending on – who's leaving and who who else might decide to go and go elsewhere or who might retire. But at the end of the day, you knew our right, defense is going to stay the same person is going to stay the same. The coaches that I interact with are going to still be there. So yeah, I'm, I'm going to like this uh, and I'm just going to continue to work hard because you also want to see him be successful as well. So, you know, that's like, all right, Wade was my, uh, our defensive coordinator. So I want to make sure now that he's got the head coaching job, like we're going to play hard. We're going to make sure that he has success because we want him to do well. Now, I know you had uh, a couple of major injuries in your career. I mean, you tore your ACL. I mean, that's a really long rehab. What was your mental state heading into that recovery? You know, honestly, I didn't even think um, that I would not be able to come back from it. It was always kind of like, all right, look, I'm going to go and get the surgery done and then go get healthy and then come back and pick right up where I left off. Because uh, mentally, I had really just started figuring out how to play within a defense. Um, I was... For anybody that um, watches the Bills now, um, I was a nickel cornerback um, and I could play on the slot and on the outside, but I was kind of like Taron Johnson now. Like I played that, that slot guy, played that slot role, especially when we went, when teams would go four wides and five wides, we just kind of matched up. We had the corner depth to match up and play five corners uh, most of the time uh, against most teams um, that could do that. So uh, I was kind of figuring out how to play in the defense, how how to fit as a slot guy, where to go, how to communicate with the other corners and, and my good friend, Ken Irvin, uh, who we still talk, I still talk to this day. Um, we, we, we kind of had a, a, a mental kind of like telepathy almost between the two. It was like, I could look at him like, okay, I know he's going to do this. And he could look at me and say, okay, Marlon's going to do this. I'm going to do this. And so we had kind of had that, that type of bond as players on the field. So when I tore my ACL, my third year in, I didn't think too much. I was like, all right, I'm gonna have surgery and that's it. But I had three classes left to graduate. Uh, and so I just kind of said, hey, in case something happens and it takes longer or they find something and it's more extensive and damaged than, than, they, than they thought that the MRI said, then let me go back and graduate. Uh, and so I took three classes um, and I went and had surgery in December. Uh, I came back home to Columbus uh, in January and was on crutches with stitches uh, in my left knee um, and a backpack and, and my books. And I finished all my classes um, and graduated and then came back and finished my rehab while I was the did some rehab while I was there at Ohio State, finished the rest of it back in Buffalo. And then really like the way we kind of did it is we we really like to push the envelope. And I know I like to push the envelope um, and they don't do that now. Um, now that's kind of like you tear your ACL, it's, it's at least a year injury and they give you at least a year of rehab to kind of make sure you get everything right, get all the muscles strengthened around it, make sure there's no issues. Um, I literally tried to come back in not exactly nine months from the day that I had surgery. Um, and so I was already in training camp trying to do those things um, eight months in and was just having a lot of issues 
um, with swelling um, and it wasn't the yellow or clear fluid that was they, they were draining from it. It was blood. So there was definitely some tearing and other things that I was doing, some damage. And I kept trying to play on it and ended up just we gambled and said, hey, listen, if it swells up again, we're going to go go to go get it looked at with Dr. Stepman in Colorado. And I ended up tearing the other ACL playing in the first game against San Diego. So um, and literally nine months, I had two major knee injuries to my left knee and then the other to my right knee. Um, so so that kind of made sure that I was done playing football after that. I did everything I could to get back. But that's a lot of trauma to try to come back from and and be ready for the next season. And I just needed way more time to kind of, kind of get healthy. Uh, and so that's kind of how my career ended with Buffalo. Now, I know at one point there was some interest in from the Jets as far as you going to the Jets. Is that true? Yes. Um, so the day that I tore my ACL, I unofficially, I'll put that in air quotes, <laughs> had a conversation with uh, my agent. He was kind of, listen, you're, you're going to be an unrestricted free agent and you, you've been playing pretty well. And um, he had some relationships with some of the guys in front offices. Um, and one of them was um, with the Jets. And they just kind of said, hey, you know, we need cornerback depth. We've been watching him play the last three years. And if he stays healthy, um, you know, we're going to make a run for him. You know, Buffalo still had the first right of refusal, so it could have been a moot point. But they were going to try to make a challenge and say, hey, we may see what this plays out to be. And then, ironically, I tore my ACL playing against the Jets. Um, so I guess it was just not meant to be. I was meant to stay here in Buffalo and 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 be where I am now. And and I love love everything that's all ha happened so far. And I, and I love the way my life turned out. But, yeah, it would have been interesting to see how to stay healthy and I got to the Jets, what that would have looked like. Hmm. So how are your how are your knees doing now? They're feeling great now. Um, I've I've stopped with all the the running. I can't do that anymore, um, and I can't play basketball anymore because yeah, you still love to play basketball still. And I was still playing until I did a jump cut and then aggravated my knee. I was like, probably shouldn't have did the jump cut. <laughs> uh, but the doctor like stay off your knees, and so I, I've kind of stayed off of it. Uh, and then really, I've been kind of doing just body weight. Um, squats and things like that to kind of make sure I still stay in some type of shape. Uh, and because of that, my needs now, they don't really bother me. Mm -hmm. So I'm guessing after the second injury, you're, um, you knew that there was going to be a lot of rehab in that you're released by the bills. You didn't latch on with the jets at that point. Did you know that uh, playing football was done for you? Um, I didn't think it was done yet. I, I kind of said, let me get healthy and see what this looks like. Um, so the Jets were kind of like in that period right between the first one and the second one. So I knew that all right, I can't get healthy. So that's fine. They were going to come after me then. But if I was healthy and showed that I could play, then maybe I still had my unrestricted free agency coming up. So so that was the second one. Um, and then I just kind of once I got released, ironically, I got released the day that the bill signed um, another Ohio State Buckeye um, and Antoine Winfield. We had drafted him in the first round. So. Um, they needed the roster space because we were kind of full. And so I was the natural selection of, hey, you you know, you're not healthy. If you get healthy, call us, we'll bring you back in. Uh, and so I spent that entire offseason just trying to get healthy. I moved back to Columbus, um, re did more rehab there, um, then ended up getting married and moved back to um, Buffalo uh, and and had a workout, had a tryout with the Indianapolis Colts. And then they were just like, listen, it's like, you know, you had a great workout. You look great. Um I had, I had I had been lifting, had um, hired a personal trainer, had done all the things I needed to do to see if I could make the, make a run at it. And I just kind of told myself, like, I'll give it a shot. Um, and if it doesn't work out after this, then I'm done. Then I'll just walk away. Uh, and so after doing that workout with the Colts um, and, and Tony, Tony Dungy was there uh, and they was like, you had a great workout. You know, we had you running faster than you ran at the combine after the double ACL injury. I was in really good shape then. Um, and they're just like, but, you know, we did the MRI. We looked at your knees. Like, there's just a lot of damage um, still in there. And we're just concerned. So um, because of that, we're not going to sign you at this time. And I'm like, okay. And then I just say, I'm done. So I just called my agents. I'm done. Um, that's it. Like, I, I flew back home, came back and just kind of say, I'm done. Like, I'll just, I'll walk in for football. And I never wanted to coach. Uh, so it was like, all right, what do I want to do next? So, so I just kind of found something um, within the community that I was like, wanted to do. I was like, Hey, you know, I'll, I'll try banking. Um, it seems interesting. And so that's what I did. I, I, I got a job working for KeyBank. We're going to take a quick break, then continue with our interview with Marlon Kerner. If you like what you're hearing, consider pressing the donate button in the podcast player. That money goes to continuing to provide quality content as well as to help retired players in need. 
you are enjoying this interview, make sure you visit the FLA website at www.football-learning-academy.com. There you'll find more archival interviews such as Don Shula, Mercury Morris, Ken Riley, and Maxie Bond. We also have a variety of other interviews such as Amy Trask, the first female CEO of an NFL franchise. We have broadcasting and sports writing legend Leslie Visser teaching a mini masterclass on interviewing. Nolan Harrison, a former player and current senior director at the NFL Players Association. Shannon Easton, the first female on-field official in NFL history and many more. To get access to these interviews, classes on the history of the game, a blog and much more, go to www.football-learning-academy.com. We're back to our interview with Marlon Kerner. What degree did you get your undergraduate degree? I have, um, I got a degree in business that was um, consumer affairs. I was like, wait a minute, because I also got a master's here a couple of years ago. So I was like, wait a minute, what I think, what I think. But I, I knew I wanted to be around people, um, but I didn't want to be, at the time when I went into, I was like, I don't want to be the dude in a suit, like um, sitting in an office in a cubicle. I was like, I need to be around people. So they were like, oh, you would love this. And so it kind of helped you get the reverse psychology of why consumers do the things they do which was kind of cool. Um, so I was like, oh, and why we respond to certain stimuli, like, oh, save a hundred bucks when all I did was raise up the price a hundred bucks. <laughs> so, you know, things like that, but the psyche of when people feel like they got a deal. So we got, we really got to dive into that and kind of figure out why, um, what makes a good ad, what, what makes people really gravitate to certain things and why people feel like they're getting a deal, even though sometimes when you think about it, they're not really getting that, that best of a deal. Um, and why marketing works. Some certain marketing works and why certain marketing doesn't work. You have the same type of role. I know you also work for Tops Markets and Target, uh, similar type of responsibilities. Similar type of responsibilities. Um, at KeyBank, it was kind of cool because I got to see the entire aspect of banking. So I did from the branches to their call centers. I got to see all of it. Um, and in the call center, you get to call people from all over the country and you get to kind of see how banking looks different um, in your region and how your regional banks affect certain things and how they do certain things here and how it's done so different on the West Coast, the fee structure that they charge. Like I learned all those things, what to do, what not to do, how to structure certain things. So that was really um, enlightening um, as an individual because you're like, those are certain things you don't necessarily talk about and you watch about some of the things that I I, I watch people where, you know, you give you know, you have an old grandmother come in and, you know, she gave her granddaughter power of attorney and her granddaughter liquidated her account. Um, and there's nothing that you can do except I can try to refund as many fees as I can, but I'm sorry to turn a negative um, and things like that. Did you saw those stories are like, OK, mental note, don't do that. You know, and if you're going to do that, don't do this and learn certain things from there. Um, Tops was more of the just learning customer service, how to deal with people, how to deal and smile when people are always like the customer's always right. Um, and you're like, uh, not all the time. <laughs> so so learning how to deal with those things. Uh, and then Target was just, I did, I learned a lot with Target because then I started really managing a lot of people. Um, I, you know, I was in charge of friends. So I had the two largest departments, cashiers, all the food services, service desks total culture throughout the store. Um, and so you had to make sure you really help people understand of why it's important to say, you know, can I help you find something? This Target's catchphrase was when I was there um, and just really making sure that you provide that ex exceptional service, which sometimes, you know, we hear now that you can't find good customer service. Um, and so I was like really on this thing of like making sure that we really provide great customer service, right? Like I would always tell the cashiers, like, listen, you are the first thing that people see when they walk in and the last thing that people see when they leave. So you need to make sure that you provide the best customer service, no leaning on your desk, no phones, like, or not your desk, no leaning on the cash registers, no phones, none of those things, because your first impression can sometimes be your last impression. And so we really would talk to that with them and just kind of help them understand. And and so we we had, we had really good scores um, that, that we would get rated on as far as customer service. And then I did HR um, with Target as well. So that really was an eye-opening experience of really helping stores really develop the culture uh, and then transition to player engagement and 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 with the bills before transitioting to what I do now with entrepreneurs. Yeah, now talk to me about the uh, player engagement. You're also director of alumni for the bills. Let's start with the director of alumni. How'd you get that job? So I was here, um, still working for Target uh, and Russ Brandon was the team president and what always happens is, is you always have somebody in that role um, that can kind of that the players can kind of call. Um, and that person was kind of Jerry Butler and Joni Graham. Um, and then they ended up leaving. They retired. Jerry left the organization, moved on with the Cleveland Browns. 
Joni ended up retiring. So there was nobody to fill that role. And so former players necessarily don't always get the same love as current players, uh, unless you're a Hall of Fame player like Jim and Thurman and Bruce and Andre. Uh, and so what ended up happening was, which always happens, a lot of teams sometimes will do this. They'll take, hey, alumni can be ran by marketing. And nothing wrong with having alumni run with marketing. Um, but what always happens when you put it in marketing is then it becomes dollars and cents, right? What What's the return on investment? If I bring this person in and I have to fly them and pay them, then what's my return on investment? What do I get back? And, you know, is it a big enough client, a big enough alumni to bring to this client um, that has a deal with us? And so you always look at it in dollars and cents instead of trying to build a relationship to make sure that you create an environment where your players want to return um, and that your current players feel like, oh, this is the family oriented style that I want to come back to. And so they wanted to, so it, it went to marketing and it turned into that. It was just, they only brought in certain guys. Um, and then, you you know, after a while, people were like, I don't want to see that person anymore. I need more people. And, but you don't have the connections because you lost those. So I was brought back to kind of create those, those, those connections again and start bringing back guys that hadn't been back before. Uh, and so I did that for the first year. And then we had a coaching change um, from Rex Ryan to Sean McDermott. Uh, and then I moved from there to director of player engagement. Uh, and so I brought in uh, another guy named Jeremy Kelly, um, who was a former athlete, uh, former uh, athlete that grew up in Buffalo, um, played for West Seneca West, um, and then went on to play for Maine um, and, and had a few stints with a few teams uh, in the in the league, Denver and the Colts, um, the Denver being his last one. But, you know, so we became um, kind of this really good duo of kind of bouncing off each other and playing back and forth. And so, you know, because what you want is you want player engagement to be that funnel into the alumni side of it, because they're always going to be former players at some point in time. Uh, and so while we love them as fans and you always cheer for them because you want them to do well while they're playing, at some point in time, they're going to get released or they're going to get, they can't play anymore and they're going to become a former player. And so you really want to make sure that you set up something so that when they transition in, that they know that they're going to be someone to talk to and, and be able to, hey, I need this, I need that. What can I do? How can I come back and watch a game? How can I come back and bring my family and those type of things? And so right now the Bills are in transition with that role right now because uh, Jeremy also moved on and went to um, the Carolina Panthers. So right now we're just kind of trying to figure out as former players, what do we do? How do we go? Who can we call within the organization? So it's going to be interesting and fun to see who they hire for that role because they've got some big shoes to fill. Mm -hmm couple of things that uh, you had mentioned in that response. One, you glossed over Rex Ryan. Uh, we all know his personality. What was it like working with him? I liked Rex. Rex was um, a really good person. Um, and he's, he was a really he was a good coach. He, he understood football. Um, what Rex liked to do is he liked to take the pressure off of his teams, right? So, and I understood that because just from watching him uh, while he was with the Jets and 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 watching his persona when he um, came from Baltimore um, as a DC, just like, okay, I get it, right? So he was the type of person to kind of say, we're going to win, we're going to do that, we're going to hit him off, we're going to be the bully, we're going to do that. So he would make these grand statements and he would put it back on him so that if the team didn't play, it's my fault. Like, I got to do a better job of getting the, the players better prepared and better coached, right? So I understood his philosophy. I think what ended up happening was is he took that same approach with Buffalo, but he didn't have the same players, right? Because you can make that statement when you have a Ray <laughs> or you have a Ed Reed, right? So like, all right, look, we're good. Like, you know, because those guys are going to then demand the excellence that you need in the locker room, right? And so what ended up happening was is you still had a very young football team and you had some guys, you had a few vets, but you had a lot of young guys who didn't really understand what it was like to be a professional just yet, didn't understand how to play the scheme, maybe didn't understand um, just where you needed to be. And and some of it just didn't have the talent that you had. Like Ed Reed could cover up a lot of faults. You know, Ray could cover up a lot of stuff. He made plays happen. You had um, Saragusa up in the middle. So you always had guys that could at every level on the defense and on the offense that can make plays. And and Rex being an offensive guy or defensive guy, like, you know, all right, you try to find the best offensive coach you can. But, you know, his mentality was always, well, our defense is going to hold. Um, but when you don't have the, the horses, um, so to speak, or the athletes on the, on that defense side of the ball and you still play that same style and you still have the same bravado, it makes it difficult. And I think ultimately that was what ended up uh, kind of doing it kind of was his 
undoing because it's just he didn't have all the players in the right positions um, that he needed to to make sure that he could keep it the way he was. And he, he still took the same approach that he did with the Jets um, in Baltimore. Just, you know, I'm going to come in, I'm going to beat the character um, and take the pressure off of you and make it so that you guys can go play. And we just de- never made enough plays on defense to kind of back up his talk off the field. Mm-hmm. Now, in your role with uh, player engagement, obviously you're going to see things with players coming into the NFL in order to be able to assimilate to life within the NFL and as a professional. Then you've also have preparing them for leaving the game and how do you work on your career after your NFL career? What are the types of things that you saw in both of those situations? I think what I saw the most was um, there's this dynamic tension that always happens between being in player engagement and trying to get a guy prepared for what you know is going to come eventually that he's no longer going to be able to play and he needs to make sure he one saves money that he needs to make sure that he if he hasn't he's graduated from from college um, and that he's making sure that he's prepared to be ready to say okay at any point in time you're done playing Uh, and so because you have to balance that with the fact that they're still trying to make a team and this is a business and so if you don't perform at a high level you're never going to be there long enough to get them prepared. So it's that dynamic tension of I need you to play, play, play and play well and play early, play often and do all those things to kind of set yourself up um, for the next contract that you might be able to get. Uh, And so you always fought that dynamic tension right there. Um, And so I think the biggest thing which the league has made um, some really big strides in is the money piece, right? Because when when I first um, took over and even when I played, um, the way they paid out the money um, to me was kind of crazy because if you didn't have a good foundation, if you didn't have somebody in your ears saying you need to save, you need to budget, it could be really easy to blow through more money than you really anticipate because they would pay you in 17 weeks. Uh, so literally you would play a game, um, you would go through the off season. So it starts like this, right? So you go to training camp, you get all this, they give you a weekly stipend um, that doesn't count. Once you make the team and you play that first game on Sunday, you come back and on Wednesday, you get your first check and you'll get 17 paychecks after that. And that's it. That's your season. <laughs> that's all the salary you get for the year. It's done. And so if you make the playoffs, that's additional money um, that comes into your pocket that you're not anticipating. But if you don't make the playoffs, that's it. So, you know, when people say, I don't understand how guys could go and lose this type of money, lose that. Like, it's really easy because, uh, you know, like guys are like, you're getting checks you've never seen before. And we would talk to guys about that. Like, you know, um, we would tell them, listen, don't be dismayed. We would say, you know, I, I had a little thing with M&T. We brought them in to do some financial literacy and talk about um, taxes and, and things about and budgeting. And we would, you know, say, listen, you got to make this 17 weeks last for 52 weeks. Like, so don't be, you know, mis- dismayed and, and be over here like, oh, I've got all this money because no, you don't have all this money. You've got to pay a lot of things coming up. You're going to pay taxes at the end of the year. You got to pay your agent fees at the end of the year. Um, and they're taking all that off the gross and you're bringing home about 50% of it. So we'll take your salary, cut it in half and then pay your agent fee, take your 3% out of that. So now you're at 47 and then pay your taxes because they never take out enough. Um, that's New York state. And so you end up writing another 25, 30, sometimes a hundred thousand dollar check to New York state for taxes. They didn't take out uh, and you pay taxes in all the other States that you play in. So oh, when you get done with it, you're like, okay, this 50% is not really like 50%. It's more like 42, sometimes 39, depending on if you play a lot of California teams, cause they take a lot of taxes out. And so, and so now you're looking at guys like you can't afford this. You can't afford to go get this range over. You can't afford that. It's like, so stop keeping up with the Joneses. Stop trying to worry about the image. And so we had a lot of conversations about that, uh, but then really helping guys like really balance the the performance piece. Like what, what are you seeing? Why are you struggling with this? Because that ultimately decides how long you stay in the league. If you can pick up defense, if you can learn how to pick up an offensive playbook um, or kind of be able to compare and find similarities from other defenses and offenses that you found in like, oh, when they say this, it's like this, you know? And so we have vets to come in and talk about what that looks like, how to be professional, um, really, that was one of the biggest things we talked about, what it's like to be a pro um, and being prepared um, and how to handle the locker room um, and handle just what comes along with being a professional athlete. Like, don't be on Twitter. Don't do this. Don't have those battles and and stuff like that. Right. And so once you kind of figure it out, you help guys play and then you hope that they get the long enough career. Um, and I would always tell guys like your goal is one as a rookie, make the team. And then your next goal is to make the team the next year. And then it's to make the team the next year because you need to get three years so you can get vested because your first goal as a as a to, on the former side is I want to get vested like that's the main thing. And so you need three years to get vested 
So don't look at, I want to make $50 million, for example, look at and take it in stages as year one, I need to do this. Year two, I need to do this. Year three, I need to do this. Year three, I'm vested. So once you get that, congratulations. Now you have pension that you can collect at 65, um, 55 or 65, depending on when you want to take it from the NFL. And you're going to get some other benefits that come along with that. And so we would kind of try to balance what that looked like to help guys do that. And then making sure the guys take advantage of the 401k because the NFL had a very generous 401k. Um, and they would literally give you, if you could put in the full amount, they would give you almost two for one um, for what you would put into it. So I'm like, that's free money. Like mm-hmm. you're not even going to miss the 20,000 that you're going to, that they're going to take out, but they're going to give you $30,000 to put on top of your 401k. So take it now. And now you've got another bucket you can check off. Like I've got my retirement taken care of. You do that enough. You're going to have a lot of money for you when you get ready to retire. And then it's just, now you have to manage from when you're done until you retire and oh, by the way, that's going to be the longest phase that you live in anyway. So helping guys see that and see the big picture, then you're like, oh, okay, I get it. Um, and so I think the reason why I tried so hard to make sure that player engagement and alumni was aligned was because there's always going to be somebody that's going to listen to you, right? When you get there, like, oh, Marlon's right. I get it. I understand. There's going to be some guys like, nope, he doesn't know what he's talking about. I'm focused on football. I don't care. And then they're going to call me and say, hey, listen, I'm out of the league. I don't know what to do. Like I've blown through this much money or I've saved all my money. I don't know what to do next. Like, what should I do next? Uh, and so if you align the two departments, then you always have a pipeline. They can come to somebody. I can make sure they get the right right care that they need and get them connected with the right resources. And so that's why we we tried so hard to make sure those departments stayed aligned. Now, you mentioned the alumni. I know that you're pretty active with the Buffalo Bills alumni. Talk to me about the work that they do in the community and some of the most active alumni within that association. They do some amazing things. I think um, having having been a transplant coming from Columbus and living here, you know, I got to see those guys and I met them. Um, and, and early in my playing career, um, Charlie Ferguson, um, the, the now uh, recently passed Charlie Ferguson, um, and then Booker Edgerson uh, and Jeff Nixon uh, and and some of my teammates, David White, Marlo Perry, who are now uh, some of the guys that are um, holding positions within the organization within the the Alumni Foundation and Association. Uh, But I mean, what they were able to do and just over the years and just the amount of money that they helped raise and out there in the community. And I can't forget um, Sweet Lou Pacone uh, as we say, Sweet Lou. Uh, But, you know, when you think about guys like that, just who are selfless, right, who come out and kind of say, hey, listen, it's not about me and and, and, and then aren't are willing to use their own quote unquote celebrity to really bring awareness to a cause or an issue that they're passionate about. Um, that's what those guys bring to the table. Um, and I, I think um, they were really great examples. I think if I remember correctly, because I may say it wrong, but I think over the last 20 plus years, they've raised and donated over $2 million um, to the Western New York community. So again, when you think about that and just that feat alone of being able to raise and donate that amount of money, um, you know that people don't continue to come back unless you have a genuine heart and a genuine spirit um, and really care about the community. And so that's a testament to what um, those guys do and who they are as individuals and what they've been able to accomplish and the amount of money they raise to help organizations um, within the Western New York community. Yeah, I remember going to those alumni events and seeing Charlie there, seeing Booker there, Lou Pacone, Jeff Nixon. No, not sure if you know, Jeff Nixon provides the music for all of our stuff here that. at the FLA. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so I know Jeff and we interviewed him a few weeks ago as well. So uh, he's also going to be on the podcast, but uh, yeah, they do an amazing, um, amazing amount of work within the community and Lou, yeah, Lou Pacone too. Um, yeah. Those are all great guys doing a, a lot of great yes. work. So you got a fellow DB coming on. Right? I love it. Keeping it, keeping it in the secondary. I, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> now I know you went back to get your master's degree. What'd you get your degree in? I got a master's in strategic leadership um, from St. Bonaventure University. Um, And it was more so when I thought about I was in sports, I was in player engagement, had already uh, done uh, four plus almost five years of HR. So I kind of understood about, all right, I wanted to help people become um, leaders and understand like the the importance of influence and how we all have the ability to be leaders, um, whether we see that as a title or not, um, or even if the title is ever given to us. But um, and so when I was looking at what I wanted to do next, um, it was while I was as a director of player engagement, um, and I did it for two reasons. One, um, I had wanted to go back and get a master's, and I was like, I, I didn't want to get an MBA because I was like, I, if I go that path, I don't know if it serves me. I could go other ways with it. 
but I was thinking I wanted to stay in sports and I thought the master's of strategic leadership would help me um, in that aspect. But then also, if I decided to go back and do HR, the strategic leadership came in more handy um, as far before I would go do the MBA piece of it. So that was the reason why I went that route. Um, and I wanted to do it because I was like, one, I'm checking off that box. I wanted to go back and get my own master's degree. And so my kids were still coming and they got to watch me go through that process. And then the second reason why I did it was because I would always tell guys, you know, you can go back to school. Like I would talk to guys like, all right, make make a plan. I can't, I don't have time. Like, yes, you do have time. Like take a class here, take a class in the off season, find a summer's class when, you know, they're like five weeks long before training camp starts, like do this, do that. And they're like, I can't, I'm like, okay, I can show you that you can do it. So I did it. And I talked to people like, Hey, I'm going back. I'm getting my master's. You're going to watch me. We would talk about certain classes with some of the guys. Um, and they would watch me on the plane. Like I literally would travel um, with my laptop. Sometimes I'm sitting on the plane while we're traveling and I'm typing up some papers or I'm in my room. Uh, I remember we played Dallas um, on Thanksgiving day and I had um, a, an assignment due and I got sick. And so like I emailed my professor, like I'm super sick right now. Um, can I have a one day extension just to um, make sure I finish this up? Because I was super sick and I needed to take some medicine. And she was like, yep, no problem. And then I got up at three o'clock in the morning because <laughs> I felt better, finished my paper and submitted it and did everything done um, and got it done on time. And then we had some time as a, as, as a team just kind of come together, had some meal, had a meal together. Uh, and then we would play the game. And so we ended up winning the game and came back. But I was like, you know what? I can, that's when I realized, I was like, wait a minute, you know what? I, I can do this. And so that was kind of the reason why I wanted to show guys you could do that. And so we had some really good conversations about that. And, you know, and I always had my laptop with, um, and Ohio State logo on it because yeah, you know I yeah that was it. After <laughs> right, <laughs> just had to have something that says Ohio State on it. And so that was it. And they were like, "Oh, take that buckhead stuff out of here." And what are you doing? I'm I'm working on the paper. What's the paper on? And we would talk through those things. And well, why are you doing it now? And now I, it gave me a chance to say, "Well, if I can do it, you can." Like, and I'm not telling you to do it now that you're playing football, but I want you to understand that it doesn't matter. At any point in time, you can go back and finish it, finish your class if you haven't, or if it's one of your things you want to do, you can check that off yourself. I know when we were talking previously, you had mentioned about doing a paper on early history of pro football. Talk to me about what you covered with that and what you discovered in your research, because you're talking my language. <laughs> <laughs> so I kind of did this whole paper. It was my final project. Um, and so we had to write this 20 page paper. Uh, and so I kind of did it on the NFL um, and it was right with the George Floyd um, murder um, and everything that was going on and how the NFL players um, had did their own video. They reached out and did their own video alone. It was like, we, the um, players of the NFL demand this. And so I kind of said, you know, this, I did a topic um, surrounding why that happened and how the NFL could utilize it to do this. And we kind of went back to history of the NFL. And so it was kind of interesting when I started researching it um, because I'd always heard of the, the uh, Fritz Pollard Alliance. And so, but I'd never really stopped and thought like, well, wh who is Fritz Pollard? Like I kind of like did a quick little, you know, you do the Google, who's Fritz Pollard, you get the Wikipedia page, like, man, he was awesome. But then I kind of went back really and started digging into the history of the NFL because I wanted anybody to read, read that paper, like stop. Like if you really want to know who the NFL is and why the NFL is a microcosm of the world today, um, especially in America, Take you can just look and see what happened in NFL. Um, you can see why the tensions that happened in our communities, like we we exhibit that at all times. And so that was like the purpose of going back and kind of getting a history and capturing that. And so you start reading about, you know, where it where it started. And I was like, oh my gosh! And and it happened to line up right when it was like NFL 100 at the same time. So mm. I got another crash course because the NFL was like, well, we want to give and pay and pray and, and give homage to these teams to help start what is now the NFL. And so I kind of started learning about that and learning about the panhandles. I'm like, wait a minute, like Columbus, born and raised in Columbus. And you're like, man, I didn't know about all these things. And so I really started learning more and more about the league. And, and even in the, even when we have our own dark history of the NFL, when they were like, Hey, you know, we're not letting, they have an unwritten rule of letting no players of color in the NFL for a certain time. Like I didn't even know that. Right. And so it was just a really good way to kind of learn when and how the league started how the league exercised its own demons um, and how it became who it was and what it is now um, and how it can still become even greater and stronger uh, just by what we're doing and what they're trying to do now. And so it kind of talked about, I kind of laid out some things of what they should do um, while they're in this, this state. Um, and they've done a really good job of navigating 
all the unrest that happened in the community. Um, and now really trying to say we're going to make a positive show of how we're going to be out there and let, play, let the players kind of be out there. And so some people are always going to criticize it, right? <laughs> like some like, oh, it, it's just for show. And maybe it is, maybe it isn't. I don't know. But I mean, when you give guys the platform to say, I'm going to support this cause and do it this way um, and help in this fashion, then I think, you know, it's up to the you judge the players by the result, right? And that's it. And so I kind of let it speak for itself. And then history will judge itself when we look at it 10 years from now or 20 years later um, from now. And maybe my paper will stand the test of time too. I would love to read that paper if you're willing to share it. Absolutely. I'm willing to share it. Yes. All right. Um, yeah. I mean, when you talk about some of those early players, you know, Fritz Pollard, you mentioned that Charles Foley, you had Henry McDonald. There's a lot of pre NFL players that, you know, their stories are not getting told. Right. And, you know, to have you, to have other people come out and start telling their stories. I mean, it's important that that happens. Um, talking about the ban on players from 1933 to 1946, you know, the one that nobody wants to talk about, but it happened. Right. The reasoning behind it, all of that. Um, yeah, there's a lot of history there that people really need to know about. So it's good that you're out there, you're telling that story. Other people are telling that story and hopefully more of that will come out in the future. Absolutely. Fingers crossed that it will, but yeah, it's been, it was definitely an eye-opening experience. It made you realize like, Oh, I understand why when they say, you know, sports is definitely just a small microcosm of the world, the U S like, yes, it really is. Like you can slice it and dice it in if you want to, but we represent everything that America is um, and we do it on a daily basis. And so it's pretty eye-opening just to learn the history and see how our history coincides with America's history. Hmm. Now let's get on to what you're doing now. I know you're in the nonprofit space. What are you doing? So I work for a nonprofit called Entrepreneurs Forever. Um, we are based in Pittsburgh. Um, and so I'm not a Steelers fan. Um, so I do drive by there and look like boo Steelers, uh, but <laughs> <laughs> but um, what we do is, is uh, our founder, his name was Joe Callahan. He passed away um, years ago, um, so I never got to meet him. But he was a member of Young Presidents Organization, um, which is a peer-to-peer -peer, um, networking, peer-to-peer -peer program um, where you have to have so many millions of dollars in revenue. Uh, and so um, he took multiple organizations from their ideation phase to that multi-million dollar level um, and was a member um, of the Pittsburgh Young Presidents Organization for 37 years. Um, and so he seemed like a very, he was, from what I heard and saw, an amazing individual. And I'm sad um, that I did not get to meet him because he would have been really cool to talk to and have some conversations with. Um, but as he was thinking about his own legacy and, and why he has success, uh, he kind of said, you know what, my network, you know, and I can relate to it because I explained it to people and they say, well, what do you do? I'm like, have you played sports? And he, he said, oh, yeah, I played sports. I'm like, so, you know, when you left sports, what did you miss the most about it? I'm like, did you miss the practice? No. Did you miss the games? Not sometimes. I mean, but once you get old enough, you're like, I can't do this anymore. You're like, I don't miss the games anymore. It's like watching them. You know, but they're like, I miss the locker room. I miss those buddies. I miss my buddies. I miss the conversation we had. I miss the stories we would tell. Exactly. I'm like, that's what we do. So we create peer-to-peer -peer networks, or as I like to call, your business locker room, where you bring 10 to 12 entrepreneurs um, from all different type of industries. So you're not kind of like, oh, we're not all cleaners or we're not all, you know, people that own financial firms. It's just, we bring them from different industries so that one, you can see that you all are going through the same problems and sometimes have some of the same issues. It just looks different. Um, and so look what, what issue a baker might have might look different for somebody who has a masseuse, who owns a masseuse shop, right? Or you know, somebody who is a physical therapist or somebody who was an independent real, real estate contractor, right? So so we bring all those types of people in um, together and then we meet monthly um, via Zoom um, for two hours and we just kind of talk through your issues and challenges um, in real time and give you kind of that peer-to-peer -peer learning that you so desperately need. Um, we have a facilitator that's trained in group facilitation um, that's also a business owner. So they can come in and we talk about certain issues and challenges um, and we'll bring certain topics that we come in that kind of are driven by the group. And so I love it because you really get to watch and hear and learn how people 
like approach challenges. You get to see them sometimes when they just sometimes need to vent. And they just like, I just need to vent for a second. Or sometimes like, hey, I've got this issue and I don't know how to solve it. And then you get to watch people like, oh, I had that same issue. And I'm, I I met this person and they helped me with this and they helped me talk through this or they helped me find this or call this person. They can help you. Um, or I did X, Y, and Z. You know, it might not, everything might not translate ex exactly for your business, but if you do this, this, and this, it'll help you. And so just watching people kind of bond and grow with each other, it's really cool to see. And then you watch the camaraderie build. Uh, and, and so it reminds me of being in a locker room so much. And so that's why I love doing it. I love being there just to help people. And we do it for existing people because we find there's a lot of help for ideation. So there's like accelerated help. There's a lot of people for tech. You want to start a tech company, you can find something. But we found our niche in finding people that have been in business for at least one year that um, are full-time in their business and have at least $30,000 in revenue, then we can talk and say, okay, how can I help you? And, and I am amazed at hearing people's stories of, hey, you know what? I want to start a business. I had money saved. I just did it. I jumped into it. I was like, really? You just jumped into it? Yeah, I had no idea what I was doing. You know, my buddy said, you got to do this, this, and this. So I did. And I'm like, that's pretty cool. And they're like, but I need help. I'm trying to figure out what I need. I want to, I want to scale it. I want to do this. I want to do that. And like, that's pretty amazing, your story itself. Um, or just watching people talk about how they overcame and something that was a side hustle that they took because they lost their job. And then they just took the side hustle and it took off. And they're like, I, you know, I wasn't planning on it. I thought I was going to go back to work. And then I was like, I think I have a business. I'm like, you absolutely have a business. And so you watch them kind of then have that mind shift of this is no longer a part-time gig. This is something I can make a livelihood at. Um, and then you watch them start hustling and doing all those things. And so it's been fun and rewarding just to watch people kind of go through their own process and, and the friends that you get to build um, throughout that process um, as well. So that's what I do now uh, for Entrepreneurs Forever. Yeah, I mean, that's got to be inspiring to be able to see these small businesses grow like that and seeing everybody, you know, with that unique model that you have, the peer to peer model that everybody's working together to help each other. So, you know, you've got to be inspired by seeing some of these success stories coming out of that group work. Yes, it's it, it makes you kind of go back and remember why, you know, like when I think about Booker um, and Charlie and, and and the legacy they leave, I'm like, you know what, I think about it all the time because when I was them, I was like, I want to, I want to start my own business. And so being around them made me remember that, oh, I, I said I was gonna start a business at some point. So I'm like, I am, I'm going to do that. <laughs> so it's just kind of like, you, you kind of get, you get excited, you get all the, just the, the energy that you get from watching people become successful um, and solving challenges when you're like, man, like I would, that's an interesting way to think of it. And then it makes you change your way of thinking. Uh, and then I'm like, all right, so you know, and now I'm talking to my kids like, hey, you know what? You should do this. And and I'm and and every athlete that I know is like, I'm going to start a business. And so now I'm better equipped to kind of say, well, if you're going to do that, you should do X, Y and Z. And you should really think about this and you should surround yourself with this. Um, and I, I could see at some point in time that we have a group with just former athletes that are in the group talking about their businesses and talking about where they are from all across the country doing those things. Just saying, I did this and I'm trying this and I did this. And, you know, and that I think that's going to be really cool and huge because we already had that brotherhood already. So just adding that part of it and finding entrepreneurs to talk about it and helping people navigate it um, is going to be make us even more stronger as as former players and alum. Yeah, I mean, that definitely is a great idea as, you know, talking to you, talking to plenty of other players. I mean, a lot of people have their own businesses right now and they could definitely use that advice. They may not have the the business background to be able to, take it to that next level. And so by having all of you come together, working together, then you help each other succeed. So again, it's emphasizing that brotherhood that you have being former players. Absolutely. One last question. What advice would you give to your younger self? <laughs> well, it seems to stump people. <laughs> no, because I've, I've been on this really interesting journey. Um, and sometimes I think um, we don't always understand why things happen. Um, you kind of, and so I would tell myself, my younger self to one, enjoy the ride. Life is a journey. It's a ride um, and it's going to throw curveballs at you. Uh, and so I would tell myself to embrace them, um, embrace the curveballs, attack it like you would attack it, like you were trying to um, really go and make a football team um, and make a football squad, like attack it like that, take that energy and attack it and challenge it because you, you'll, you'll turn into somebody that you're going to be very proud of um, at the end of the day. Um, and I would tell myself to um, give yourself more grace. Um, don't beat yourself up over things because um, I can be really hard on myself, <laughs> really, really hard on myself. Uh, and 
And I would tell anybody that's even anybody that's listening and watch how you talk to yourself because you can talk yourself out of some really good ideas um, and talk yourself out of just taking a chance and taking a leap by the way you talk to yourself like, oh, it's never going to happen. And 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 as 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 you believe it and then so it is. Uh, right. So, you know, really your self-talk is really, really important. Um, and I didn't always learn that um, and understand that lesson when I was young, because you know, when you grow up um, in a single parent household and there's like, you're not supposed to make it anyway. I, I always relished in being the underdog. Well, I wasn't supposed to be here anyway. Right. Um, so once you make it and you're like, okay, I made it like you're not the underdog anymore. So now what are you going to do to challenge yourself? And so your self-talk really then becomes the catalyst to really helping you become seeing the right path to take or kind of like, ah, I probably shouldn't go there because I'm probably not going to make it anyway. So I would tell myself that give myself grace, um, embrace those challenges and curveballs that come your way um, and watch how you talk to yourself. Cause it really does impact your own thought process. And then really just smile, just enjoy it. Like life's too short. Um, it's not about the money that you're going to make um, and that, or that the money that you lose It's about the relationship that you build. Um, and so if you can build the right relationships, then you're going to be okay. That's great advice. I mean, we're always our own worst critics. So um, power of positive thinking, you know, is a real thing. And you think positive, you think about, success and things that you can do and you can make it happen. Yes, absolutely. Marlon, thank you for being here. I really appreciate your time and, you know, I wish you all the best going forward. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to our interview with Marlon Kerner, but we're not done for our pro football history nugget of the week. We talk about some of the best players to come out of Ohio state university. At the time of this recording, there were 492 players from Ohio State that took the field in regular season pro football, but we're only going to cover a few of them here. Let's start with some of the Hall of Famers like Paul Warfield, a wide receiver who played for the Cleveland Browns from 1964 through 1969, then went to the Miami Dolphins and played there from 1970 through 1974, including their undefeated season in 1972. After spending a year with the Memphis Southmen of the World Football League in 1975, Warfield played two more seasons for the Cleveland Browns before retiring after the 1977 season. You also have Hall of Famer Chris Carter, wide receiver with the Philadelphia Eagles, Minnesota Vikings, and Miami Dolphins. Hall of Famer Lou Groza, who played 21 seasons with the Cleveland Browns from 1946 through 1967. Dante Lavelli, another Hall of Famer with the Cleveland Browns. Lavelli played end for the team from 1946 through 1956. Dick LeBeau, Hall of Fame defensive back for the Detroit Lions from 1959 through 1972. He was also well known as a coach who spent 29 years coaching, mainly as a defensive coordinator, but also a couple of stints as a head coach. Orlando Pace, Hall of Fame offensive tackle who played 12 seasons with the St. Louis Rams and one season with the Chicago Bears. Hall of Famer Jim Parker, Offensive lineman with the Baltimore Colts from 1957 through 1967. Bill Willis, Hall of Famer, who helped break the color barrier to reintegrate pro football in 1946. Willis played eight seasons with the Cleveland Browns. Possible future Hall of Famer Randy Gratishar, who just recently became a finalist for the Pro Football Hall of Fame class of 2024. And let's not forget some of the current players like Joe Burrow, brothers Joey and Nick Bosa, and Ezekiel Elliott. And anyone who knows me knows I cannot escape talking about older players. And High Brigham played for the Columbus Panhandles when the NFL was founded in 1920, although the league was called the American Professional Football Association at the time. Now, this is by no means an exhaustive list of great players who went to Ohio State. I know that there are a lot more that can be discussed. So tag me on social media to discuss your favorite players that went to Ohio State. That's all that we have for this week. Stay tuned to our social media channels to stay up to date on our episodes. You can find the links on the main page of this podcast. If you like what you've heard, consider pressing that donate button in the podcast player. That money goes to continuing to provide quality content as well as to help retired players in need. Thank you for listening to the official Football Learning Academy podcast. To learn more about the FLA, go to our website at www.football-learning-academy.com.
Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. This is Mark Mortier, and if you're a sports history fan like me, tune in and hear me talk about some great sports moments of the past. Growing up during the 1970s, I got to watch some of the most iconic moments in sports history. Hank Aaron breaking Babe Ruth's home run record. Willis Reed limping out of the locker room in Game 7 of the NBA Finals at Madison Square Garden as the fans erupted with a thunderous ovation. The 1980 Miracle on Ice as Team USA defeated the powerful Soviet Union in the Olympics. Listen every Tuesday on Yesterday's Sports. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.